Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, we want to discuss how long is too long for a movie because... I'm Jeff Braun. Martin Scorsese has a new movie in theaters this weekend, and it's a long one. And I'll also take a look at the new Frasier reboot. Plus... I'll tell you about the latest contender for my top 10 favorite shows of 2023. Yes, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time has a new movie in theaters this weekend. It's Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm the director of The Wolf of Wall Street. And based on a true American story. Please send help. There's murder in this town. There's $25,000 laying there. I was sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. What's he found out? Nothing. Well, you seem nervous. I got no nerve. Think someone's gonna hurt you? You think I'm gonna hurt you? Killers of the Flower Moon. Rated R. Only in theaters October 20th. Get tickets now. Killers of the Flower Moon stars not one, but two, or both, of Scorsese's go-to actors over the years in Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. Between them, I would say they've starred in most of Scorsese's movies since the mid-70s. But they have never starred together in a Martin Scorsese movie until now. The movie's based on the true story of the Osage First Nation in the 1920s in the middle of America somewhere, which became rich when oil was discovered on their land, and then the subsequent violence at the hands of those who were looking to separate the Osage from their newfound prosperity. De Niro plays a bad man who apparently was some sort of hand in this. Uh, DiCaprio plays his nephew who falls in love with an Osage woman, and I guess his loyalties are divided. She's played by Lily Gladstone. And she's getting a lot of good buzz, which is saying something to stand out with those guys looming large in a Martin Scorsese film is no minor feat. The movie co-stars Jesse Plemons, John Lithgow, and Brendan Fraser, who are three actors I'm happy to see pop up in anything. And the controversial thing about this movie is the runtime, which is clocking in around three and a half hours. There was an over four hour cut that he first came up with but he's trimmed it to a mere three and a half hours that's very long it is not terribly uncommon for martin scorsese of late 2019's the irishman was also three and a half hours the wolf of wall street in 2011 was three hours in fact the shortest film he's made in the last decade was a movie called silence in 2016 which was only two hours and 40 minutes now, while Killers of the Flower Moon opens in theaters this weekend, it is really an Apple TV Plus movie and will be available to stream there pretty soon. Uh, I couldn't find any set date for that as of this recording, but I'm sure it'll have a lot to do with how much money they can make in the movie theaters. And I'm sure there are executives with dollar signs in their eyes hoping it pulls off some kind of Oppenheimer magic. That wasn't an obvious hit on paper, but it was made by a filmmaker who makes epic movies, and of course it had some incredibly good fortune in the marketing department with the whole Barbenheimer thing. I can't imagine that this new Martin Scorsese movie will actually see that kind of financial success, but you never know. At any rate, the super long runtime will be less of an issue for those who end up watching on Apple TV Plus at home when it becomes available. I know I watched The Irishman over two nights on Netflix when that came out. I imagine a lot of folks will do the same with Killers of the Flower Moon. I do have tickets to see it in the theater tomorrow, but I'm also battling a cold as of yesterday, so i just have to wait and see how I feel tomorrow. might have to cancel that screening. Um, I'm also planning to go by myself, which means, A, I'm either going to have to limit my liquid intake all day before the movie to about two tablespoons of water, or B, 
I take a bunch of bathroom breaks during the movie, and I won't know if I miss something important unless I want to ask a stranger, which is not something I want to do in a darkened theater. Nevertheless, I am excited for this one. It looks like Scorsese is another winner. It's at 94% on Rotten Tomato with nearly 200 reviews in. He's 81 years old, and we simply won't get many more films from Martin Scorsese, so I'd say it'd be a good idea to try to get to the theater for Killers of the Flower Moon if you can, and if you can stand that three-and-a-half-hour uh, runtime, Brett. Yeah, the summary on Rotten Tomatoes says, Enormous in runtime, theme, and achievement, Killers of the Flower Moon is a sobering appraisal of America's relationship with indigenous peoples and yet another artistic zenith for Martin Scorsese and his collaborators. On the subject of the length of the movie, he was interviewed by the Hindustan Times, and he says, quote, People say it's three hours, but come on. You can sit in front of the TV and watch something for five hours. Also, there are many people who watch theater for three and a half hours. There are real actors on stage. You can't get up and walk around. You give it that respect. Give cinema some respect. So, first of all, um, I've never been to a theater show that was three and a half hours, but every theater show I've been to had an intermission. So... Uh, I think everyone, maybe there was one that didn't have an intermission, but it definitely was not three and a half hours. So, but on, on one hand, I respect, I kind of respect his stance. Like he's 81. He's still making these big, powerful movies. He loves the cinema. He has no problem speaking his mind about the cinema and what he thinks could be wrong with it. Like when he described the MCU as a theme park, I don't think he meant that as an insult. I'm pretty sure there was some follow-up commentary on that, but he said it's not cinema. So good for him for sticking to his guns on wanting to continue with his master craft. On the other hand, three and a half hours in today's day and age, man, I could barely get through two hours, 45 minutes of John wick chapter four. And that was fun. Action, fights, explosions, oh my! But this one is a pretty serious-looking movie. Uh, and pointing to people sitting in front of the TV for five hours, like, do you really think I'm sitting there for five hours straight without getting up? Yeah, I might spend an entire day watching television, but I'm getting up to go to the bathroom, or I'm getting up to get something to drink, or I'm getting up to forage through my fridge and cabinets like a raccoon looking for a snack, or I'm checking my phone to Google something, or, or, or. Uh, and I would point out, sitting in one spot for three and a half hours is not comfortable, even in the fancy recliny seats they've got now, like the, the leather ones or whatever they're made of. I don't know if it's leather or a synthetic I get sweaty on those seats. Do you do you get uncomfortable if you sit there too long, Jeff? I'm pretty sure I've sat in the seat after you because sometimes it kind of grows <laughs> when you get into them. But uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much of his, you know, the way he's coming at it is, you know, from the point of view of a pretty elderly man. And I know a lot of old guys who can just sit there for five hours. But I'm like you, yeah. If, if I'm at home watching TV all day, I'm up and about and walking around. And like you've mentioned, at the theater, there's an intermission. So if you're going to make a three and a half hour movie and we got to buy a ticket and go see it in the movie theater, you, there should be an intermission. I don't know why that is such a hard bridge for either the filmmaker or the theaters or whomever to cross. But like a 10 minute break in a three and a half hour movie is not 
unreasonable for anyone sitting in that audience to ask. And you'd think the theaters would be on board because they're going to sell a little bit more drinks or popcorn or whatever, because some people will take advantage of that 10 minutes to just uh, go re-up on the snacks. So, yeah, just sitting stationary for three and a half full hours is bizarre to me. Yeah, it's like Mr. Burns and the, the Simpsons sort of mimicking the old-timey movie stuff. Let's go out to the lobby. Let's go right, out right. to the lobby and buy ourselves some snacks. And I just looked, Googled it. Why are why we like men's health apparently has done an article movies are too long we need intermissions back so they say that after reels were no longer needed theaters kept intermissions going to give audiences a break but eventually phased them out in lieu of packing more screenings into each day the last movie apparently to have an intermission in the u.s was gandhi in 1982 so there there it is they're just trying to get as many screenings as possible so I can appreciate that. But, like, I still remember going to see Lord of the Rings Return of the King for the first time. I think it was a midnight yeah. show. And I had to pee for, like, the last hour 15 of that movie. But I, I didn't want to miss anything, so I didn't get up because, you you know, it's the culmination of this three-film saga. So I just sat there squirming in my seat for, like, the final 45 minutes, you know, where there are, like, five false endings. You keep thinking, okay, it's yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Get no, wait. There's on no- the boat, Frodo. We need to end this now. <laughs> yeah, like, I got to pee. Uh, so I loved that movie, but it's a tough go sitting in a movie theater for that long. And with the way that, and this is not an indictment of the movie industry, but with the way that my attention span has changed in the last 15 to 20 years, I don't think I could do it. So really at all. Ah, I don't know. I'd be, not even if you test. did one of your uh, patented, you find out somehow where there's a, a, maybe a softer 10 minutes where you could just go outside and go to the bathroom and go take a vape break or whatever it is and kind of rejuvenate yourself. Even I'd have you to do it. I guess I could use that app run P if it's still a thing. I haven't used it in a while. Used to, tell you what the best time is to go for pee breaks. So that's out in the movies. Should also tell you that there's another one out, and it's called Dick the Musical. Hang on. It's Dick the Musical. I can't even say the name of this title. Oh, my uh, God. It's, <laughs> I'll just give you the quick summary of it. The two self-obsessed businessmen discover their long-lost identical twins and come together to plot the reunion of their eccentric divorced parents in this riotously funny and depraved musical from comedy icon Larry Childs. Larry Charles, excuse me. I watched like 15 seconds of the trailer and thought, nope, uh, there's clearly nothing I'm going to be able to use <laughs> in uh, on our show. <laughs> but it's getting decent reviews. It was at uh, 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Up next, we're going to talk about the reboot of Frasier. Is it any good? Find out in a moment. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And the new Frasier series began this past week. What is it about the city of Boston that leads me to forego the more sophisticated temptation of the fermented grape? Sitting here with a cold brew in my hand, I feel amalgamated with the hoi polloi. You are the classic everyman. Freddy! Surprise! Dad! You're at my door, unannounced. Now, there's a shorter way to say that. Surprise! (laughs) What's going on with your son? I wish I knew. Got a girlfriend I've never even heard of. When I told him I wanted to spend more time with him, he said no. It's just not a good time. Have you considered that he hates you? (laughs) 
The new Frasier is streaming on Paramount Plus, and the first two episodes were on regular TV on CBS, which is how I saw them because they don't have Paramount Plus. The question is, were they good enough to get me to subscribe? And the short answer is... No, they weren't. I laughed one time over the course of the two episodes, and those are not great numbers for a comedy. Kelsey Grammer reprises his role as Dr. Fraser Crane, eminent psychiatrist. We first met him on Cheers in the early 80s. He started as Diane Chambers' boyfriend on that show, then became a bar regular. He was friends with Sam, Norm Cliff, and the whole gang in Boston. When Cheers ended, Fraser got a spinoff show, one of the most successful spinoffs of all time. It ran for 11 seasons. The character moved back to his hometown of Seattle and renewed his relationships with his father and brother, Martin and Niles. At the end of O.G. Frazier in May of 2004, he moved to Chicago to be with the woman of his dreams, Charlotte, played by Laura Linney. His father was newly remarried. His brother and Daphne had a baby in the finale. Lovely, happy endings for everyone. A great send-off to a great series. And now... A lot of it has been unraveled. We were witness to 20 years of Frazier's life over the course of those shows, but we did not see the last 20 years. It seems Frazier moved from radio to TV while in Chicago and became a Dr. Phil-type figure. He's famous around the country because of it. So he had a whole career that we didn't see, and now he and Charlotte have split up. We get exactly one line of dialogue that washes over those two decades worth of his life, and that's it. But now that he's done with Chicago, Frazier's moving back to Boston. He's become estranged from his son, Frederick, who's now in his early 30s, and he wants to set that relationship straight. And if all that sounds familiar, it's the same setup as the previous series, only with his son instead of his father. And that's not where the similarities end. A lot of the jokes are based on Frazier's pretentiousness, and his son is a blue-collar type, a fireman, who would just as soon use an air, to an air hockey table as a dining room table, which Frazier, of course, cannot comprehend. Uh, I do like the way that they've come up with this, uh, to have those juxtapositions similar to the previous show, but it comes at the expense of some continuity because when we saw him as a kid, Freddie was always super pretentious and nerdy like Frazier and Niles, but somewhere in the last 20 years, he did a 180. And I mean, I know a lot of people change a lot between the ages of 10 and 30, but this seems a bit much. Uh, I will say that unlike Martin, Freddie can at least follow along all the pretentious stuff that Frazier says because he does have a lot of book smarts and has retained them. They've also recast the actor, which I think was a mistake. Um, I don't know, maybe the kid who was playing Little Freddie doesn't act anymore. Not sure why but it's kind of jarring. Growing up, Freddie also has a friend, Eve, who has a newborn baby. The father was a friend of Freddie's in the fire department who died while fighting a fire. And the three of them live in a one-bedroom apartment until Frazier swoops in, buys the whole building, moves into the apartment across the hall, which is big enough for him and Freddie. As for work, Frazier gets a job at Harvard, where an old friend is a tenured professor. So it's just Frazier returning to the show. All the other characters are new. And that's a tough thing to get in front of early. I mean, when Will and Grace or Roseanne slash the Connors came back in recent years, they brought the entire cast or large chunks of them and everyone could fall into familiar rhythms. But with Frasier, we only get the one guy coming back. Everyone else is new, which means we have to be introduced, find out something about all the history of these characters, all that early kind of getting to know you business, which can make early episodes tough to make entertaining. Because, I mean, if you think of your favorite sitcoms over the years, it's probably rare that for the first half of the first season uh, to be among your favorite. They're often filled with bad jokes because no one knows the characters well enough yet for there to be like character-based humor. It has to be jokey joke humor. Uh, and I mean, like, so it's just news to everybody, the writers, the actors, and the audience. It's a tough hill to climb. And again, reboots of other shows found ways around it because they had done all that heavy lifting at the beginning of the original series. It's not 
you know, to say that this show is all bad. The one time I laughed, I laughed pretty hard, and it was just a brief aside that Frazier made, and it was like classic Frazier. There was also a nice little tribute to the late, great John Mahoney, who played Martin and passed away a few years ago. Uh, a lot of new shows, you know, just need time to find their footing, which was also true of Cheers and the original Frasier. So maybe it will get better, but I don't think I'll check back in until there's a second season on the way. Um, not quite the train wreck I was fearing, but the new Frasier is not exactly must-see TV. While we're talking about sitcoms, I do want to quickly say that I finished my Friends rewatch this week. I tore through it like a hot knife through butter. Ten seasons in eight weeks, including the last two seasons from this past Saturday to Tuesday. Some serious binging there. The only thing I have to add that I didn't mention at the end of August when I first brought it up was how nice it was now to have this reunion special from 2000 or 2021 to watch after the finale. Uh, you sort of get sad at the end of a rewatch, but now having this reunion special to cap it off is kind of nice. And there was an interesting comment in there from Lisa Kudrow, paraphrasing one of the show's creators, basically saying that they are not interested in a Friends reboot because they left everyone with happy endings and didn't want to unravel that, which after watching Frasier do exactly that, does make me glad that Friends has no plans to do the same. Although, I mean, never say never. But uh, long story short, new Frasier, not great. Coming up next, want to tell you about a show that is great, potentially top 10 worthy. Details coming up. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. And I mentioned last week that I was behind on a bunch of shows, likely behind because I was primarily consumed, almost entirely consumed with the fall of the House of Usher on Netflix, which is an excellent series, by the way full review in last week's episode of The Couch Potatoes. So this week, I mostly just tried to get caught up on some of those shows, including Survivor on Global and The Amazing Race, and I've got some thoughts on those. But I want to first follow up on another show I've mentioned in recent weeks, and that is Gen V. I know there must be many thoughts going through your mind right now. Is this the right place for me? Do I belong here? But let me assure you that we see something in you. Something you may not even see yourself, even if you do have x-ray vision. Congratulations, and welcome to Godolkin University. Gen V is Prime Video's spin-off show from The Boys, which is a superhero satire of sorts that's also still an awesome superhero show, which also happens to be super R-rated for its violence and mature content. The Boys, it's just a great show. Three seasons so far, love it. But I had no interest in a spinoff. I wanted more, just like, give me season four of The Boys. But since it's here, I figured, okay, I'll give it a shot. And turns out, I love it too. As you heard, it's set at a university, a university for super-powered people. So they get trained on using their powers, fighting crime, as well as things like branding and social media but for the powered people who don't quite cut it in terms of becoming crime fighters, they learn like stuff like how to be assistants and how to, you know, just other deflating classes. You know, they're expecting to be come in and become super crime fighters and they're told that's not happening. Our protagonist is Marie, who highlights one of the fun things this show does. Like the show, yeah, it's got your standard superpowers, strength, speed, flight, etc. But it also has some really weird powers. And Marie's power is being able to manipulate her own blood and use it as a weapon. You know when Golden Boy flames on his clothes burn off? It's like a big fiery sea cucumber. Golden Boy, Jordan, 
Andre, they're going all the way. They could save thousands of people. I was coming up with your superhero name on here. Bloody Marie. That's terrible. Okay, Coagula. Even worse. Coagula! I love that. But in case you couldn't quite hear what was said at the beginning of the clip, they were talking about Golden Boy, who I believe is the son of Arnold Schwarzenegger. But um, he he's like a human torch kind of character. He... he Become he lights up in flames, but uh, his clothes burn off every time. They haven't, I guess, figured out how quite to deal with that situation just yet. But um, everything seems hunky dory when the show starts. But then everything starts to go awry, and a group of students stumble upon some deep, dark secrets. And if those secrets get out, that's going to be a big problem for the school and for the corporation that sort of calls all the superhero shots because uh, five episodes in new episodes are on Fridays, by the way. So I'm all caught up in that and I love it. Three episodes to go. The, the stuff we like from the boys is still there. The superhero satire flipping the genre on its head, the branding and social media satire, corporate greed, all that stuff is still there. And just how corporate, the superhero genre has become, uh, be, you know, like look at Disney and just it's this constant content conveyor belt. Whereas before you'd get two or three Marvel movies a year and it was excellent. And now you've got three or four and then all these shows that they're pumping out and they're not good. They're just not good. And the, the Marvels comes out next month and its box office projections are really bad. So I think that people have sort of gotten tired of the corporatization of the superhero genre. So this show does a, a great job at tackling that. But the the satire element, so that that's all just the boys. The satire element in Gen V feels like it's kicked up a notch as they focus on younger people because now they've got things like gender identity that are thrown into the mix, even in a satirical fashion. But what this show does so well is while it does satirize and make fun of things, it still tells a great story about all that stuff. Uh, because a lot of it's just playful, friendly, you know, poking at things. Um, one of the characters in this show is non-binary in a literal sense. This person's, one of this person's superpowers is they can shapeshift into a male or female body. So in the same scene, you might see a boy version of this character and then a girl version of this character and then back. And when you learn this person's story, when we get to the episode that focuses on this character, it's really touching and heartbreaking. And I think, I hope it does a good job of portraying in its own unique way the struggles one who is non-binary might feel when it comes to fitting in, finding love, etc. The dialogue in this show is fantastic. It is brazen and fearless and sharp and hilarious. I just laugh nearly constantly while this show is on. I'm not going to say I like Gen V more. Not yet. But it is definitely on par with a level of quality from the boys. And who knows? Maybe by season's end, I will say... It's the best that we've seen so far from this world, this story world, because the boys is cool. It's just a little messy and clunky at times. This so far has felt like a much tighter and more focused story. And they've toned down some of the juvenile stuff a bit. It's still there, but they've toned it down a bit. Like the boys has lots of gross out humor gags, which... 
I mean, hey, it's fine, but why? Like, not not just like a silly gag, but there are some scenes that are outright like they just swung for the fences. How gross can we make this scene? And I don't know. Fifteen-year-old uh, Brett would love it. Forty-six-year-old Brett, not so much. Um, so yeah, Gen V Fridays on Prime. It's awesome. Three episodes left. I love it. Also wanted to touch on. Survivor, just wanted to follow up on some of the things you brought up last week, Jeff. I'm not fully caught up like I did catch up on because I had watched the first episode, but I had two on the PVR. I watched those, but then we're recording this on Thursday. I didn't watch Wednesday night's episode, so I'm not all caught up yet. But correct me if I'm wrong. I think you brought this up, but the hidden idols on the three camps and the way that people find them and activate them, are they, they're different in each camp, right? Yeah, like there was only one that was encased in wax, and I can't remember what the other ones were, but yeah, they're they're different at each camp. And then they've got those extra little bits of power, like if you use it now, you know what I mean? Like you can't vote until you use it kind of thing, but it gains power the longer you hold it, but you can't vote the whole time, stuff like that. So it's cool. Yeah, I like that it, there's a unique... A uniqueness to each of these idols for depending on the camp uh, because that is going to because all of these all of these players these contestants they study the game they know the game and they know where to look for things so the fact that they're making these changes and doing it in a way where it's not even the same at depending on where which camp you're at I think it's good because you don't want the show to be predictable like when uh, was it Russell? Was he the first guy who just went ran out into the into the forest looking for the idol yeah. without a clue? Yeah, because you always had to earn a clue to the idol, and he's like, "Well, it's out here somewhere. What if I just look for it and find it?" Yeah, and that uh, he was a kind of a loathsome character, but he changed the face of the game. Yeah, for he sure did, and uh, he actually was the reason I ended up going back because I missed his season, but I came back for season twenty because everybody was talking about how awesome he was, and I thought, ah oh, man, I wish I had seen that. So I'm going to watch season twenty, Heroes versus Villains, and oh boy, I was so happy to be back. It was like getting together with an old friend. I'm not sure that I'm digging the ninety minute episodes. I know why they're supersized. It's because of the Hollywood strikes and they needed to fill the content and they clearly have plenty of content because they're shooting, filming 24 hours a day. But uh, what do you think? 90-minute episodes, yay or nay? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just going to say so far nay with the exception of last week, which would be the the most recent episode that you've seen. That was a really good episode. So that it didn't bother me there. But if they're... Some of it does feel like filler, and if they're struggling to find 90 minutes worth of really solid footage with all those cast members around, it feels like it should only get harder and harder uh, you know, as it goes along because there'll be fewer and fewer people there. Yeah. Conversely, a show that is also 90 minutes that I am enjoying the extended length is... The Amazing Race. And I think the reason why is there's just way more action on The Amazing Race. Like, it is in constant motion. And that's not a knock on Survivor. Like, part of that show, part of the the interesting stuff on that show has always been the sitting around and the, the conversations that they're having and the lies they might be telling each other. And you can... That's crucial to the Survivor formula, but I found myself skipping through some of that. Uh, with the third episode, I was like, ah, 
don't really feel like sitting through all this talking. Less, less talky talky, more action. But uh, you're you're the reverse when it comes to Survivor, right? You said you don't really care for the challenges. No, if I'm fast forwarding through a part of Survivor, it's definitely the challenges, especially a reward challenge. Yeah. Okay. And one of the cool things they're doing this year in the Amazing Race is there are no non-elimination legs like the way the show works for those who don't watch it is each episode is a leg and the last team to arrive may be eliminated sometimes they get saved it's a they, it's deemed a non-elimination leg and then the next leg they have to complete an additional task and fight their way back and uh i think it's totally it, i don't i don't think it's random where they pick i think the producers just decide okay this team's coming in last do we want them to stay or are they boring do we want them to go okay get rid of them um cuz there have been some teams that have been saved like three times cuz the producers clearly didn't want them to go uh if you but in this one if you finish last you're gone so there's no non elimination legs that's cool and they're back to flying commercially again which adds a level of drama because after the pandemic they they just they they were on a charter flight like they had their own plane everybody left at the same time landed at the same time now they they have to go to travel agents book flights and uh, it it adds drama what if the flight is delayed what if i can't catch another flight for 6 hours after five teams are gone am i going to finish in last place so i like that but i'm still enjoying both of them just for different reasons and uh, i like that they're back to back that's a nice one two punch uh, two of my favorite unscripted shows and i should point this out for you as well it, it might it's probably on your radar but uh, you're a fan of the animated uh, romp series on Netflix, Big Mouth, right? I, I watched the fr season seven starts this weekend. I'm still on season six, I think. I haven't watched that in ages, so I need to either get back onto it or just say that I've cut it off. I'm not quite sure where I stand on that right now. It's been a while. But yeah, it's a pretty good animated show starring a Nick Kroll and uh, John Mulaney as two, uh, I think they're now probably high school kids, uh, and they're just, you know, trying to navigate the uncertain world of uh, being a teenager. So that's on Netflix, and it's a pretty crazy show. I watched the first few episodes, uh, but then I fell off, and I uh, kind of wish I had continued with that. Up next, Jeff. When Jeff told me he watched this this week, I got so excited. I want to hear what he has to say about this classic <laughs> psychological thriller. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett, and I watched a classic this week, one that I had somehow never seen before. It's 1987's Fatal Attraction. A look that led to an evening. A mistake he'd regret all his life. Daddy! Honey, oh. I'm not going to be ignored. Do you have an affair with her? It's going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibility. What responsibility? I guess he thought you'd get away with it. Well, you can't. Michael Douglas, Glenn Close. Fatal Attraction. Yes, Fatal Attraction stars Glenn Close and Michael Douglas, as well as Ann Archer, Stuart Pankin, and the little girl who played Randy Quaid's daughter, Ruby, in Christmas Vacation. Uh, it's on Paramount Plus right now. I own the DVD. I've actually owned it for a couple of years, but only now got around to watching it. It was part of a 20-movie collection I found at Walmart for 20 bucks. a great box set of 80s and 90s movies that was clearly put out because Paramount had a lot of extra discs laying around a warehouse and wanted to get rid of them. Fatal Attraction was the biggest movie in the world in 1987. It took in $320 million. Uh, that'll never happen again for a movie like this, even without taking inflation into account. If you've never seen it, Michael Douglas plays a family man who cheats on his wife at the earliest possible convenience. 
and he's the hero of the movie. He has an affair with Glenn Close, and then she won't leave him alone. At first, it's just a lot of phone calls, but then she shows up at his house, and it escalates, and it escalates. And, you know, being a movie of the 80s, she's basically just considered, quote-unquote, crazy. Watching in 2023, you realize that there's a serious mental health issue at play, and you have maybe a little more empathy for her than... You would have when this movie came out, although I was pretty impressed at how the movie does hint at the mental health issue before she really starts acting erratically. There's a lot more nuance than I was expecting, which just adds to the overall tension. Little red flags early along the way where the audience realizes something's not right before Michael Douglas realizes it. It's among the best versions of this kind of movie. It's probably considered the first of these kinds of thrillers, and it was followed by 15 or 20 years of much worse versions. It's kind of wild seeing Glenn Close in a role like this because we usually see her as a lady who's calm and in complete control. She, you know, plays the vice president. She plays the head of some agency or something. She's the boss. And here she's a lady losing her grip with reality, which was kind of shaky to begin with. And by the end, she's kind of completely unhinged. It's just a great job of her playing against type. And she had the fight to be in the movie, though apparently that had more to do with the studio being worried that she wouldn't be sexy enough. Michael Douglas, on the other hand, was built for a role like this. He is the good guy, but he's also not a good guy. And that's where Michael Douglas shines. He's believable when he's, you know, a good guy like in the American president, but he's more believable when he's got 10% jerk mixed in with it. Most people, you know, have a side of themselves they're not terribly proud of. Michael Douglas loves to play guys where that 10% is just shining through. Yep, he has a way of making you side with him. He's terrific. I always say he's one of my favorite actors, yet somehow this movie was a blind spot for so long. Um, I think, honestly, the reason I never saw it before now was, A, I felt like I'd seen it because everyone knows what this movie's about because it was a monster hit. And B, it's the shorthand people use for talking about stalkerish behavior. It's been a referenced a thousand times in the last 35 years. I'm glad I finally caught up to it and get to cross it off my list. So uh, four couch cushions out of five for Fatal Attraction. And by the way, I'm counting it as a Halloween movie, Brett, because it's a thriller. It's tense. There's blood. And that's good enough for me. That counts as Halloween movie. <laughs> and dead animals. There's a knife. And, uh, yeah. and uh, are, are you tempted to look into the television series starring Pacey? Oh, I didn't know Pacey was in it. I was just going to say no, but now I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. <laughs>